We'll go ahead and get started. My name is Frances, and uh, I am the one of the co-chairs for the healthcare committee of DSA New Orleans, uh, along with Allison and Laura, who are both here. Hi, Allison. Hi, Laura. Um, and I'm really, really thrilled because tonight we have a truly incredible lineup of speakers. Uh, we have folks from Luke's house, uh, from Birthmark Doulas, and uh, last but not least, we have Michael Lighty. And we'll do introductions, you know, throughout the night. So that's just a little preview. But to start things off, I do want to say a few words about the work that we do in New Orleans DSA around Medicare for All. Because if you're moved or inspired at all by the speakers that you hear tonight, um, this is the work that you can get plugged into in your community right now. I'm also really excited to see some new faces in the crowd, um, in particular because it gives me an excuse to do my favorite thing, which is define Medicare for All. Um, so if you're not familiar, Medicare, as it currently exists, is a guaranteed health insurance program for older Americans. Um, you might know, like your grandparents, your parents might already be on Medicare. But a Medicare for All system would expand and improve this program to cover all U.S. residents. It would replace private insurance. It would eliminate co-pays, premiums, and deductibles. And it would include comprehensive coverage, so medical, dental, vision, uh, long-term care, anything that can be provided by a healthcare professional. The DSA campaign for Medicare for All is a nationwide campaign, but we're an organization whose energy and vitality stem from the work that we do in our own communities. And that's one reason that Medicare for All is such a powerful campaign. It unites chapters from across the country around this common demand, but it's also flexible enough to fit the work that chapters are doing in their, in their cities. Here in New Orleans, for example, we, we canvass for Medicare for All, so we go door to door once a month, and we talk to people about what it would mean uh, to, have, to have Medicare for All. We've also done a street medic training, so learning the practical skills that, um, we, so that we can take care of each other as we move forward in this fight. We've held speaking events like this one, and we have lots of exciting stuff on the horizon. As our capacity builds, as we bring in more members and more energy, and we can take on bigger and more interesting uh, fights around Medicare for All. And then we also hold bi-monthly health fairs and medical debt clinics. At these events, we offer a variety of resources. We offer health screening, so blood pressure and blood sugar. We offer information about healthcare resources, about how to access care. We also offer information about housing resources, because housing is a healthcare issue. And we offer food, because food insecurity is a healthcare issue. And then we also offer assistance, uh, along with partnering with the Debt Collective, uh, we offer assistance disputing medical debts. And through that work, we've built relationships with other organizations who come to table at our health fairs. And in a city like New Orleans, where so many different health outcomes are totally abysmal, and where the violence of health inequity is so readily visible, we're lucky to have so many organizations that are working creatively and energetically towards a vision of health justice. And I'm excited to highlight the work of some of those organizations tonight. And what our health fair, what our healthcare committee can do with these health fairs and what we strive to do is bring some of this work around, uh, to unite it around a common political demand. And these fairs are also opportunities to build relationships with our neighbors. We talk about what's worrying them about their health care, where they've been hurt by the system, and as best as we can, we leverage our collective power to try and mitigate that damage. So when a community member walks into our health fair to discuss a medical debt, we can talk to them about their financial rights and how to dispute that debt and how to fight it. And in, in that sense, that's a type of harm reduction of, of of medical capitalism, which is a noble pursuit, but ultimately an inadequate one. But within these conversations, we're continually clarifying for both ourselves and our fellow chapter members and 
uh, for the people that we meet. We're clarifying and articulating a radical vision of true health equity, one in which medical debt does not exist, and medical bankruptcy or being denied care does not exist, and having to worry about meeting your deductible is not a thing. Because we're trained to expect so little from our healthcare system, Medicare for All can seem, at times, like an almost foolishly abstract idea to organize around. But that's only until you have the violence of the system squarely in your gaze. When someone is standing in front of you on the verge of financial ruin because of a medical emergency, the concreteness of Medicare for All becomes all too clear, and the urgency becomes really palpable. But still, the gap between what we have now and what we want is vast, and it can seem impossible to bridge. That's why a crucial part of the work that we're doing is about elaborating a vision of a better world. And we can build that vision out of clear beliefs that we will not waver on. We believe that everyone, no matter how much money you make, or how old you are, or where you grew up, or into what body you were born, deserves access to high quality health care. And when we say health care, it's not just about the absence of, of disease, it's also about the opportunity to achieve bodily prosperity and to really flourish. And we believe that healthcare is a basic need, and that basic needs are human rights. And then lastly, and then I'll wrap it up because we do have so many amazing speakers tonight. Lastly, and in some ways this is the most important thing that we can convey to someone, especially to people who are really beaten down by pessimism and cynicism, or worst of all, pragmatism. Um, <laughs> we, we believe that we will win, that we will win this fight and that we will achieve the first truly universal social program in the history of the United States. All right. Woo! All right, so um, it is now my pleasure to introduce Adam Bradley. He's the uh, executive director of Luke's House, which is a primary care clinic that serves uh, the undocumented and also houses street medicine. And you can talk about all of that. Cool. Uh, thanks, Francis. I will use the microphone even though I'm loud. Um, how are we all doing? Good. Do we have full, full enough bellies? I mean, none of our bellies are that full. Cool. So I'm here wearing a lot of different hats, um, and so I'll talk a little bit about 504 HealthNet, um, a little bit about Luke's house, and then a little bit about Adam, uh, and then I promise to leave plenty of time for other people to talk about themselves too. So 504 HealthNet is a nonprofit that's a that I'm a board member of. Uh, that is a conglomeration of all the federally qualified health centers uh, in the city and all the folks who are really working uh, to provide access to care to folks. And so that is a charity, Access Health, LCMC, which is Louisiana, I don't know what it stands for, but that's the folks who run uh, UMC and who run Children's Hospital, who run Turo, um, and all the other folks um, who are providing access. And I was asked uh, to come here and to talk a little bit about what 504 HealthNet is doing. Uh, 504 HealthNet's mission is to provide access to medical care to everyone in uh, New Orleans. Um, and so uh, they put on health fairs and they bring a lot of folks into the system. You, there's a number that folks can call. I don't have it. I'm a terrible board member, my bad. Um, to kind of find a clinic that's near uh, you um, to get care. The real side of me, uh, for folks who are wondering kind of like, what's the, why aren't our uh, federally qualified health center partners like stomping down the doors and trying to really push for Medicare for all? Uh, folks uh, would love Medicare for all. Um, I think most of the providers and uh, most of the CEOs of uh, nonprofits in this sector would really love Medicare for All. I think uh, the reality is after the state and LSU decided to privatize Charity Hospital and then after the city decided to privatize 11 of their 13 clinics, uh, that this is now a business. It's now a, pro a private business in New Orleans. 
Um, and so folks are looking at their bottom line first. Um, and it's something that I disagree with, but I don't think that it's a really terrible argument when people say, um, if we really lay down the law and say that you know everyone deserves uh, access to care and we're going to do whatever we can to provide that to everyone, uh, regardless of income, then that means that they go out of business. Um, and so it's a really nice kind of shield for folks to stand behind and say, like, you need us because if you don't have us, we don't provide care. But they're kind of tied as well because if they step too far, then their funding gets cut. Um, and so that's kind of my 504 Health Net and Federally Qualified Health Center hat, um, letting you know kind of the broader politics that are happening in New Orleans. Um, Luke's House is a free medical clinic that I'm the executive director of. Um, we provide free medical care to everyone who walks through our door regardless of anything. We don't ask any questions. There's no qualifying anything. Uh, myself and two other staff people are the only staff people who run it. Um, we have 150-ish uh, volunteers who provide medical care. And so we have 20 to 25 uh, providers. And we have 100-plus medical students uh, who volunteer with us. We have a Tuesday and Thursday general clinic, which I'm stepping away from right now to speak here, um, where we see about 8 to 12 folks, um, school physicals, blood pressure checks, blood sugar checks, just like anything that folks would need. But the whole purpose of that is connecting people to the, the greater system, right? And so connecting people to mental health care, connecting people to a primary care uh, provider, and then especially connecting um, people to care at UMC. Um, and so if folks don't know, if you are a resident of Louisiana, um, and have been here for at least six months, um, uh, you might qualify for financial assistance at UMC. Um, it's a really cool thing um, that we have in Louisiana. Uh, and so we do our best to serve as patient advocates and navigators and connect people with the specialty care that they need at UMC. Um, we have a street medicine program as well where we go out and check on folks who have been recently discharged from the hospital and who are living unsheltered. Um, and we check on them and try and pull them out of the ER, which is why the hospitals love us because we save a bunch of money. Uh, but we do it because people deserve care, right? Like that's just the way we do things. Unfortunately, the systems of New Orleans, if anyone has really ever navigated the mental health care system or navigated housing or navigated health care, uh, they're pretty complicated in our community. Um, and so street medicine can really only do so much um, to connect people to all of these different resources when a lot of them are fragmented um, and don't have support from the federal or state level uh, that they need. So yeah, Medicare for All uh, would benefit a lot of folks. It would prevent a lot of those things from happening. Um, I think one of the things that it's concerning to me, though, is that uh, once we win Medicare for All, because it's going to happen because we have the momentum and it's going to be great, um, is to make sure that we don't stop. So my jam is health equity. Uh, that's kind of where my academic and personal professional love interest is. And really, when we look at access to health care, it's only like 10 to 15 percent of our determinants of health. Um, and so housing and minimum wage and immigration and policing and a whole lot of other things are really impacting our health. Um, at a level just as significant or even more significantly than just pure access to medical care. And so uh, this is an incredible uh, organizing moment, and this is an incredible flag to lift. Uh, but when we win, um, it's, not, it's not over. Um, we'll still have private companies accepting government insurance. And so we still won't have um, community control over those resources, and we still won't we'll be left out of a lot of other systems. Um, and so let's use this as a, as a kind of a flag bearer. Um, and making sure that we uh, get everything that we need. You're here. Yeah. I probably could take like one question, and then I'll bail. Uh, can yeah. you talk a little bit about the mental health services? You mentioned that briefly. The lack thereof? Yeah, well, the, so the ones that y'all sort of work with providing. Sure, yeah. So we connect with, a, um, we just hired a social worker on last Wednesday, 
um, because if folks didn't know this, we've got about 50,000 folks uh, who speak Spanish as their primary language in the greater New Orleans area, um, and we've got five providers, um, mental health providers who speak Spanish. Um, and so there really is not access whatsoever for folks who speak Spanish as their primary language. We know that in English, it's a three-month wait for Metropolitan Human Services. Um, we know that there's a lot, a long wait in other areas as well. Um, and so we hired somebody to try and do some support groups and kind of have a biggest bang for your buck. Um, we use a lot of community providers as well in our street medicine program uh, to try and get people connected to care. But yeah, realistically, it's not a city priority. It's really not a state priority whatsoever. Um, it's not a, a federal priority. And so those are um, things, once again, that we can be pushing alongside uh, Medicare for All. And I think that they're equally important. Thank you, Adam. All right, so next, uh, I'm delighted to welcome Jamila to the stage uh, from Birthmark Doula to talk about the work that she does there. All right, so um, thank you, New Orleans um, DSA, for having me. I wrote a short speech. I'll do my best to look up. All right. So there are uh, people in communities across the world who do their part to make a difference daily. Many of our efforts are fragmented and therefore we're unaware of each other. Um, and by connecting with each other in spaces like this, we can better utilize the resources uh, that we have to invest in change. It's an honor um, to share space with you all. So my name is Jamila. I've been a public health nurse for about 12 or 13 years and a doula with Birthmark Doula Collective for the past uh, five years. So some of you may be asking, what is a doula? So a doula is a professionally trained birth companion and we provide education, physical support, and emotional support to pregnant women and their families during uh, pregnancy, during labor, and before and after uh, labor. So examples of tasks that a doula might perform include advocating for a mother who is hospitalized, providing comfort measures during labor, making referrals uh, to community resources, and also educating her partner and other family members on how to support her. We operate on evidence-based practices, and research shows that no matter how, how a woman gives birth or where she gives birth, that having a doula can make a positive difference. So, Birthmark Doula Collective was founded in 2011 by Latona Giwa and Dana Corinne here in New Orleans. And as of now, we have grown into a, a member-owned collective of 11 women. Um, between our birth support services, childbirth education, uh, breastfeeding support, and postpartum support, we serve more than 150 local families every year. We aim to provide services to women regardless of age, race, uh, income level, sexuality, ability, or religion. Part of our commitment to birth and health equity, we do sliding scale, payment plans, and scholarship services to serve all women regardless of income. So we do receive a lot of grant funds from local and national organizations, but we operate on a one-to-one -one program. So this means for every family that, pay, that pays full-scale prices for services, we offer the same uh, full-scale, um, full-spectrum doula services to a low or no-income family or mother completely free of charge. We have had clients contact us who request a doula that is black or queer 
or Jewish or Spanish speaking. And with diversity being one of our values, we are happy to say that the staff actually reflects the patient population or the families um, that we serve. So I'll give you a few statistics. Um, why are doulas necessary? So in the updated 2017 Cold Chain Review, women who received continuous labor support provided by a doula experienced 28% decrease in cesarean sections, 34% decrease in being dissatisfied with their birth experience, 31% decrease in the usage of Pitocin and other medical interventions, and also a decrease in the usage of pain medication and NICU admission for their babies. So, as, as I'm sure most of us know, um, the United States has some of the worst infant and mortality, uh, infant maternal and mortality rates among developed nations in the world. And of the 50 states, Louisiana has some of the worst maternal child outcomes in the country. So, this was a recently uh, released report. In the 2011 to 16 Louisiana Maternal Mortality Review Report, the maternal rate increased here in our state at a higher rate than it did in the U.S. 45% of all pregnancy-related deaths in Louisiana were deemed preventable. Delayed access to care was also listed as one of the top contributing factors to this. Such outcomes warrant the need for change and improvements in our health care delivery system. An increase in the usage of doulas can improve these statistics. So, so far, um, Oregon and I think one or two other states do provide doula services on health insurance. At this time, Louisiana does not reimburse whatsoever for doulas. Black women in Louisiana are four times more likely to experience a pregnancy-related death than white women. So while the world-class athlete Serena Williams, as most of you or all of you may know, she survived a near-death fatal birthing experience and used her platform to draw attention to the health disparities that women of color face, there are hundreds and thousands of black women who suffer in silence or died while in labor or shortly thereafter. Um, to bring attention to this issue and to provide more resources to black families here in New Orleans, Birthmark Doula hosted our inaugural Black Birth Matters in 2016. Mothers, birth workers, and healthcare leaders throughout the city gathered to discuss these issues and create and connect, create solutions and connect. So this Saturday, October 27th, from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m., we're hosting our second Black Birth Matters conference. And this year, our theme is maternal mental health. And it will bring um, light to issues such as uh, overcoming toxic parenting, postpartum depression, infant loss, such as de demise or stillborns, um, and healing. You guys are welcome to join us. You can go to Eventbrite and just type in Black Birth Matters. Um, we also provide discounted tickets for students and for low-income folks. Um, please see information on the community resource table in the back. I have information on the newly opened um, New Orleans Breastfeeding Center, and one of the um, founders of the New Orleans Breastfeeding Center was um, opened by a birthmark doula, and then also on what a doula is and our other resources. Um, the Shadows of Humanity, Bigotry, Classism, Racism, Sexism, Homophobia, and Xenophobia have brought us here, and the, the best of us is required to remedy these ills. The best of us is love and compassion. The best of us is humility and utilizing these gifts and talents to invest in our highest good. I am ever hopeful in the power of change that the best of us can create, and being in communion with you tonight is reassurance of that. And one more quick thing, I just wanted to share um, a personal story of one of the first doula clients that I served. She was 
a survivor of sex trafficking, and I was introduced to her from the Family Justice Center, and she was in the New Orleans Women's Shelter. So needless to say, I provided services to her free of charge. She was impregnated by uh, one of the men who assaulted her. So while she was in labor, her OB was with another family. So she had a resident who did not know her story. And so I feel that my client was stereotyped and mistreated by this resident. So as she was going in and out of my client's room, she failed to close the door. So to maintain the privacy, as I went to close the door, I could hear the resident calling her irresponsible, pull on Medicaid, you know, this and that. So then when she came back in the room, she tried to force she tried to have my client sign for an IUD, which is a long-acting contraceptive or intrauterine device while she's in labor. And so I went back and I told, because like, I can't speak for the client to the provider, remember why we're here, continue to breathe. Is this medically necessary? You do not have to sign anything that you do not understand. Tell her to give you five minutes to make a decision. And so through that coaching, my client was able to say, no, you know, sex is the last thing on my mind. I'm a survivor of sex trafficking. I don't want an IUD. I just want to have my baby. She was unsupported. She did not have family. She was in the shelter alone. And so with my support, her doula, and also with the Nurse Family Partnership, which is a Medicaid-based program here that supports first-time mothers, um, we were able to help her find permanent housing, and now she has a part-time job and is recovering well. So that's just one personal story that I have of doulas, how we make a difference, why we should be covered by health insurance, and what we can do to help improve uh, maternal mortality uh, in the U.S. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much, Jamal. That was a really beautiful story. Thank you. And now I have uh, the pleasure of introducing Michael Lighty to the stage. Uh, he's a Sanders Institute fellow and um, He's a leader in the Healthy California movement, and he's a longtime DSA activist and leader. So, welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. It's really, um, it's really extraordinary to be here in New Orleans um, and to hear Adam and Jamela um, speak, because really some of the same things I want to talk about uh, is what you mentioned. My daughter was born uh, with a doula's assistance, and so um, it really means a lot to hear your story and then know about your work. Um, I worked for National Nurses United for 25 years, and one of the important programs that we initiated during that time was uh, the Registered Nurse Response Network, RNRN. And that got its start um, in the United States with Hurricane Katrina. And so New Orleans has a special resonance uh, for us because that really initiated a whole effort to understand the relationship between so-called natural disasters and the healthcare disaster that underlies and exposed when those natural disasters occur. And we see the chronic and ongoing injustice and inequality of healthcare. And so it has uh, New Orleans has a great. Um, and profound impact on, on that program and has now done relief work all over the world as a result of their experience here uh, in New Orleans. So when I worked for National Nurses United, I, I learned fundamental lessons about the human condition and that, that relief work there was a good example of that, really about the art and profession of caregiving. And at the bedside, 
whether they're in the streets uh, demanding Medicare for all or on strike for safe patient care, nurses take their patients as they find them and also expose the inequalities and seek to address them as best they can. And what they demonstrate is that they will never give up on their patients or their country. And that is a lesson that we should all learn. We should learn from their commitment to a single standard of safe therapeutic care. That enacts equality at the bedside. And that single standard of safe therapeutic care should animate and be the foundation for the healthcare system. And not only that, though, because the nurse's commitment to social justice means eradicating, as Adam talked about, the social disparities that shape our lives, our longevity, and our health care. So my work with National Nurses United taught me most fundamentally, without justice, there is no health. And without health, there is no justice. And that's what I want to talk about today. And we see injustice literally every, everywhere, maybe most prominently nationally, in the misogyny of the present administration. They, the right's desire to control women's bodies is fundamental to their political program. And we also know that women are more likely to use the healthcare system for themselves and to be caregivers for their families and their children, especially. And this includes then when they use the healthcare system, the need for reproductive healthcare services. They're caring for aging women who have long, longer life expectancies than men. Health justice, therefore, must mean explicitly repealing the Hyde Amendment. That has to be an element of it. That currently bars taxpayer dollars from being used to cover abortions. It also means prohibiting any discrimination based on sex, sexual orientation, or gender stereotyping. The Trump administration would literally eradicate transgenderism from, from the law and society. It is outrageous. This is their latest foray. And we can understand clearly that, again, justice demands that no discrimination on basis of gender identity be fundamental to the healthcare system. We also see injustice in many of the manifestations of structural racism. The jail time, the arrests, the fines suffered by black men. We see it in the ongoing injustices in, in, among East Asian and Pacific Islanders who have been historically excluded from the workforce. Also, the indifference and death and literally disappearance of Puerto Rican American lives as a result of Hurricane Maria. <clears throat> These often determine life and job prospects, and by extension, the quality of health care. These are the social determinants. Among adults under 65, Hispanics, Alaska Natives, American Indians are more than twice as likely to be uninsured. African Americans are also uninsured at a much higher rate. So health justice must mean rectifying and ensuring that no one is affected by inequality in health care. We see injustice, and I got this particularly when I was on the border down in Texas as part of this tour, in the treatment of immigrant families. And this injustice starts when they leave their homelands because of poverty and violence. Then they come to the border, they're separated, and children find themselves in detention camps and cages, separated from their parents, minimal food, no really social or educational opportunities. This is a psychological toll and a physical toll that not only affects them, but characterizes and affects society as a whole. And I think Dr. King said it best in this regard. 
we are caught in an inescapable web, inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. And that really is the basis for the kind of solidarity that we need to overcome these inequalities. And it's clear that all of these social injustices lead to and are reinforced by a fundamental basic injustice in healthcare. That through guaranteeing healthcare as a human right would certainly not rectify all of this, as, as again Adam said, but it would undercut the economic insecurity that underlies these social ills. And it would also, through guaranteeing healthcare, enable us to have an affirmative, a powerful affirmative response to this misogyny, white supremacy, and xenophobia, as it would greatly improve the material conditions of women, people of color, and immigrants. That's why it is such a powerful demand in this age of resistance to have that positive, affirmative response. And under Medicare for All, we do take public health seriously because it represents the holistic approach, the public accountability, and public financing of the newly envisioned healthcare system we seek. Rooted in health justice, this would enable us to collectively address not only the social determinants of health, but also the systemic roots of those ills. What underlies poverty? What underlies homelessness? What underlies a low minimum wage? It is a political economic system represented and reflected in the inequality and injustice that characterizes healthcare in this country. So we have this profound demand for justice, but on this path lies a confrontation with power because the ruling class in this country has a particular distaste for universal healthcare. They know the doors it would open in terms of people demanding a better society. In fact, winning Medicare for All would encourage folks, really compel us to demand more of society as a whole. Now, since the post-war period, American businesses have expanded certain benefits. Now they've retracted them, but there has been an expansion of those. But the one thing they will not make sure does not happen if they can avoid it is a social insurance program that guarantees health care. And so we have this fight, and that's what we call Medicare for All, guaranteed health care with no barriers to care. So the kind of work that we're doing in community clinics or through Birthmark, those reflect that, that same principle, guaranteed health care with no barriers to care. We need to make that writ large in the health care system. And the fight against the ruling class to guarantee health care without barriers is a righteous demand and it's also profoundly popular. And it's not surprising. And it is, I think, surprising to some of the pundits in Washington, D.C. 70% of Americans support improved Medicare for all. 85% of Democrats. 52% among Republicans. And we know that 52% of Republicans making under $30,000 a year, who voted for Trump in 2016, support Medicare for all. This reveals the class character of this demand and why it is so powerful. Now, at the same time we have that popular support, we got 16 co-sponsors in the Senate, not an institution known for progressive values. They have all this popular support and this uh, reflection of that in the Senate, and yet they call it a crazy idea. I mean, how many times have we heard this, right? Oh, it's radical, it's crazy. Well, 
I want to talk real crazy. You've heard of United Health Group? United Health Group is the largest insurance company in the country. Their CEO made $66 million in 2016. $66 million. So uh, we heard this week that Paul Ryan is, is, uh, doesn't want to eliminate the private insurance companies. In fact, Chuck Schumer, who's the minority leader in the Senate, is skeptical as well of eliminating the private insurance companies. So let's, let's call it for what it is. They're comfortable with United Health making $12 billion every two years, which they did, which they have. $12 billion every two years. They're fine with that, but we're not, and that's the difference. Now, the ACA has been actually very good to hospitals, very good to insurance companies, very good to drug companies, but it hasn't bent the cost curve. That's a, that was a famous phrase during the Affordable Care Act. We need to bend the cost curve. So how'd they do it? They raised co-pays and, and deductibles. They established narrow networks of providers so you have a limited choice of where you can go. And none of that worked. And none of it matters really to the capitalist class because they're hugely invested in healthcare. They profit from those profits. In fact, the healthcare is 18% of the economy. It is a pillar of what we call finance capital. It is capital literally used to finance the inequality and injustices of this political economy. Now, hospital corporations in particular, and the privatization that, that's going on in New Orleans is, is characteristic of it, because they were very profitable under the ACA, but it wasn't good enough. They also developed new care models to move care into less costly settings and settings that are not protected by safety regulations at the same time as they develop high-tech, high-capital-intensive, fancy hospitals, boutique services, concierge, private rooms. It's like a hotel for the wealthy. And in fact, it is. American hospitals generally, at the top level, are designed for the global elite. That's who comes. That's who can afford, and that's who comes to these ICUs and for the most high-tech treatment. And when you hear that the American healthcare system is the greatest in the world, that's what they're talking about. That high-tech, high-capital, surgical and chemical interventions that only the elite can afford. Now, it's pretty clear that um, hospitals, prescription drug companies, and insurers benefit from this current system. But why do they benefit? How do they benefit? Primarily because they can charge wherever they want. People ask, well, why is healthcare so expensive? Because prices are high. That sounds funny, <laughs> perhaps. Uh, but it's true. If we spent what Canada pays for prices for healthcare services, we would not need to raise any taxes in the U.S. to cover everybody through a Medicare for All. Because literally, this market-based rate setting is what drives up costs. Because, of course, when the drug companies raise their price, well, the hospitals can charge more. And when the hospitals charge more, the insurance companies can charge more. And then when the insurance companies charge more, then they can just get it from us. And so we, it's in a vicious circle where no one stops it. So the question is, who has the collective power to do so? Are we going to take on the healthcare industry individually? No, we are not. And that's why government is the solution. That's why our collective expression through our democratic government is the only means to control these costs. It is the only means collectively to set those prices and take healthcare out of the market and eliminate it as a commodity that is making us sick. Now, it's clear that the capitalists are not going to give us Medicare for all because they are literally profiting off our sickness. And that's because 
this unequal and downright tragic state of our current system is hugely profitable. In order to muddy the waters, the healthcare industry then sows confusion, calls it radical. They're conducting a massive misleading campaign. And think about it for a second. It's a failed business model, but a mighty PR machine. How do we know it's a failed business model? Because it requires tax subsidies. We pay employers. Some, some folks complain about, oh, the subsidies to the ACA. Undeserving people are getting these subsidies. Every worker insured in this country through their employer is part of the subsidized health care system. $342 billion a year to employers so they can afford health insurance in addition to the subsidies that go directly to individuals. So it's a failed business model because it requires those subsidies. It requires a mandate to purchase it. And in that process, they have to deny care in order to make a profit. 200 million claims a year are denied by the insurance companies. So imagine this. Imagine this. This is a product in the market. They can charge whatever they want, They can, but they depend upon taxpayers and denial of care. What are we buying? We're not buying health care. We're buying their ability to generate profits for the finance economy. It's not the same thing as guaranteed health care. It's actually a business. And it's not just the for-profits. It's the non-profits as well who will emphasize revenue and net income, who will have subsidies, for-profit subsidies within their corporate structure in order to siphon off uh, patients and then generate resources to the equity holders, usually doctors, who invested in those entities. And that is the corruption of this system. Now, uh, the other claim that they make is that Medicare for All is too radical. Kind of my favorite claim, you know, I don't know how many, yeah, majority of Republicans support a radical idea, okay. Um, but here's the real, real um, annoying aspect of that. Why does every other country in the world guarantee health care if it's so radical? When they have conservative governments or moderate governments or left-wing governments, they still believe and uphold their universal health care systems. Now, if, if the U.S. multi-payer system is so great, why aren't Canadians in the streets demanding Aetna and United Healthcare? <laughs> right? I mean, like, hey, I don't see that. So next time you, know, you hear about somebody's aunt who couldn't get a hip replacement surgery, ask them, oh, are Canadians dissatisfied? Is there a movement? To go to for-profit medicine in Canada? <laughs> Haven't seen it. And because the truth is, they have solved their cost and coverage problems. And they've done it in unique ways, different ways. But they have done it in a way that eliminates barriers to care. That's the principle, eliminating barriers to care. They also see the social solidarity, the lessening of divisions, and the more humane ethos that follows from universal health care. And in fact, they built upon that sense of solidarity to create those systems, but those systems underlie a different sense of community and commonality than we have in this country. Now, these, these folks, these countries are not free of division. They're imposing austerity. But within that context, the universal health care systems are a pillar of resistance and an affirmative response and alternative values. Also, we hear it's too expensive. Well, that's a real joke, because currently we spend nearly three times what other countries pay for health care. We have, uh, health care is going to be about a fifth of the U.S. GDP in a few years. And here's the irony. We've won the policy debate on this question. I'm here to announce that. We have won the policy debate. <laughs> How do we know that? Because the Koch brothers agree with us. 
they agree with us because they funded a study. You saw it this summer, the Mercatus study. They said, oh, my God, Senator Sanders' bill is going to cost $32 trillion. Oh, don't look at the footnote that says the present system to do the same would cost $34 trillion. And so it's very clear they cannot, they cannot actually dispute the effectiveness of this program. So they have to sow confusion. They have to scare seniors into thinking we're going to destroy Medicare. But think of the present system. 31 million uninsured. 40 million underinsured because they can't afford care. People with insurance. 42% of Americans every year defer a treatment, a prescription, a visit to the doctor because they can't afford it. And those are people with insurance. No other country in the world pays half of what, more than half of what we pay, and yet they cover everybody. Where's the money going? It's very clear it's going to the profits and the investors. Now, if they claim, okay, so it's too expensive, it's too radical, then they want to just sow confusion. Oh, it's not a single-payer system. It's not really Medicare for all. Well, they're right in a sense because Medicare has been so privatized under the existing system. Part A is the traditional Medicare. Very efficient. Administrative costs about 1%. But then you've got to buy Part B plans to cover your co-pays. You've got to buy Part D to get your prescription drugs. Those are, by law, private. Or if you want to have comprehensive benefits, dental, vision, uh, optometry, you go into a, what's called a Medicare Advantage plan. And those are cheaper for the uh, patient, but the government pays more to the private insurance companies who operate those plans. That trade-off is you can't go to any doctor. You have to go to only their doctor. And who do they market to? You ever seen those Humana ads, you know, on TV? Oh, these seniors, they're working out in the health club and they're jogging and they're like, yes, yeah, sign up for Humana and Medicare Advantage. All they want are people who don't need health care because they're not selling health care. And this corruption of the Medicare system is what is eradicated. When we talk about improved Medicare for all, we mean the eradication of that privatization because it's made it more and more costly. You put in all those programs, uh, you add up the administrative costs of those programs, it goes from 1% to 7%. Private insurance, though, is literally 12% or more just in administration. Then you add profits and marketing. And pretty soon, some of these companies are paying 78 cents on the dollar for health care and taking that 22% and investing it, paying their CEO 66 or $20 million. So the, the guys who are low paid, they make 20. So we shouldn't, you know, tar them with the same brush, I guess, right? So now, Medicare itself, of course, is publicly administered and um, publicly financed. And that is why it's efficient. And this is, this is a remarkable thing for us to admit, right, that government is more efficient. Wow, that's not what most Americans think. But in this case, it is actually true that this it is precisely how these other countries have solved their cost and coverage problems by relying upon a publicly financed, publicly administered system. So yes, Medicare is not a single payer system, but we're going to make it one again. Now they also say that the, uh, this is an ambiguous phrase, well what does Medicare for all mean? And so, as Francis said, uh, there's a very specific definition of that. I just want to run down the, the DSA uh, principles that, that underlie our description of, of Medicare for All. A single health program, 
a single health program, everyone covered by one plan, administered by the federal government, have equal access to all medical services and treatments. And that, again, you have to do two things. Enact the single standard of safe therapeutic care and provide professional clinical judgment as the basis of the healthcare system. So doulas are empowered, registered nurses are empowered, doctors are empowered. In the present system, it's the insurance companies tell you how long you can stay in the hospitals. The insurance companies tell you whether your MRI is covered. The insurance companies tell you who can be in the delivery room with you. That is not choice. (laughs) But in a single health program under Medicare for All, we would have that. It's comprehensive. So you don't have to go to Medicare Advantage and have the government subsidize more to get comprehensive benefits. All those benefits are covered. Dental, vision, mental health, all those all those benefits. And as we develop the system, we can then incorporate alternative therapies. When we were in California working on this, we talked very much with the holistic providers in, in alternative medicine, doulas and others, and say, yeah, we got to integrate all of that into the into the uh, California healthcare system. And it's free at the point of service. No barriers to care requires that we cannot have a copay. We cannot have to pay to get services. That's why you publicly finance it. Because right now we get all the health care we can afford. And if you can't afford it, you don't get it. This system means you pay up front through taxes, and then when you go seek treatment, it's free. And that's how you ensure wellness and preventive care and those things that the present system is not incentivized to do because they're not profitable. It's universal coverage. All residents are covered regardless of immigration status. Because another thing I learned from nurses is viruses know no boundaries or borders. Anyone can get sick. Anyone can fall ill. And that doesn't matter what immigration status you have, where you come from. So it must be universal. And finally, we have to recognize that individuals are going to lose jobs. The insurance industry employs hundreds of thousands of people. And I learned that when I was in Des Moines uh, a couple weeks ago. Because the health insurance industry or the insurance industry in general is based there. Oh, boy, do they have a nice office building in downtown Des Moines. Whoa, my God, Wellmark. And and those jobs are going to require a transition to comparable work, retraining, and income maintenance. So we're going to devote resources to make sure that workers do not suffer from the transition. Because after all, it's a system designed to empower workers, not uh, to hurt them. And so that is an essential component. So those five principles are key to what we mean by improved Medicare for all. But so the question is then, if we've won the policy argument, we understand the relationship of healthcare to the structures of inequality and justice in the society, how do we win it? Because really what we face is a political challenge. And that political challenge is, is, first of all, one about how we talk about it. And the other side wants to talk about, uh, in order to maintain their profit-based uh, industry, they use popular words like choice, competition, innovation. Doesn't that sound lovely? But really, all they're doing is just hiding the fact that it's unregulated market rate and price setting. And really what we've done in the guise of choice, competition, innovation is institutionalize these inequalities through how we pay for and deny health care. So we, it's very simple uh, when we, we talk about it. Let's do the one thing that's popular and works. Expand Medicare. We've tried everything else, so why not try that? 
And that's why, unlike the administrative waste and the inefficiencies in how we pay for healthcare or reimburse providers, the huge tax giveaways I mentioned and the administrative costs, the coverage overlaps of the present system, all the fragmentation, it doesn't produce universal coverage, but our demand in response is relatively simple. People get the healthcare they need when they need it. And people are literally dying for that because the, so, the system is so structured to prevent it. So with that demand, the elimination of barriers to care, that's why the Medicare for All campaign adopted all in because we're all in, in in how we benefit from it and we have to be all in in how we fight for it. The present system really does have a, a, a group that has no barriers to care. That's the ruling class. The wealthy in this country spend a fraction of their income on health care, 0.4% of their income on health care. Workers are spending 10, 15, 20%. I've heard of families spending $35,000 in, in annual premiums to cover a family of five. And that's not even the highest. And so these endless charges paid by us, the working class, are underlying the system because the capitalists who are invested in it are benefiting from our premiums, our co-pays. And what do they do with that money? They pay it to politicians, including, I'm afraid to say, Cedric Richmond, as chair of the Black Congressional Caucus. That caucus is heavily funded by the corporate healthcare industry. Heavily funded. Pharma in particular. That's not, that, there's a direct relationship between their profits and their political contributions and the maintenance of this murderous industry. Only the demand for guaranteed health care can overcome that because it generates unity precisely because it's class-based and directly addresses the real human conditions of working people in all of our complexities and helps us address the structural determinants that determine our health but especially powerful because it's the area of public policy that most intimately affects our lives, our health. And so everyone feels that personal connection. So how do we, how do we go about winning it? I think like in a lot of things, we have a great deal to learn from our teachers. Because look what's happened. This past year has brought the most exciting wave of labor insurgency we've ever seen. The labor movement is on the ropes, and there are tens of thousands of teachers in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Arizona, and red states going out on wildcat strikes to demand health care first, and then it goes beyond that. You know, and in that struggle, you see the connections. Child care, tax the wealthy, lower class sizes, and then you take on the politicians who stand in the way of achieving those. That lesson is profound. And it's not just the teachers. You've even got workers struggling, like in the steel industry. The steel industry is benefiting hugely from the Trump tariffs. But what's U.S. Steel doing? Demanding health care concessions from their workers. So they're fighting back. Hotel workers, you've seen those strikes around the country. Underneath those strikes are health care. Some of those union workers, their companies pay more for health care than they pay them per hour. In other words, health care costs more per hour than their wage. This healthcare is at the center of those uh, justice fights. And these are very sophisticated fights, communication strategies, PR strategies. That's, and, they, and they really did achieve real victories, incremental but real. And that should be a model for us in, in uniting mass action and that kind of sophistication. But not, mass action in and of itself is not sufficient. And that's why this work here 
in New Orleans DSA and the healthcare working group, we've got to build organizational capacity, organizations that will be committed to this issue and relentlessly so and not give up, not compromise up front, but make the demand and take it farther. Take it to the, to the root of these social ills, to the political economic structure underlying them. That takes organizations committed who will never give up on Medicare for all and not let these corporate politicians water it down. And I mean corporate, whether they're Democrat or Republican. So there are tactics we're doing, and, I, and the kind of clinics that, that are going on here. Again, you're addressing how do we get care, how do we eliminate the barriers to care? And that is, again, a model for how we writ large. And as part of the organizational building and the organizing, it's an essential component. But we need to, we need to go door to door in state and legislative districts. We can, start, we can start soft on someone like Congressman Richmond, but then we may need to expose his donors and take action at those donor sites. Go after the corporations, the insurance companies directly. Not just rallies, but really ongoing organizing to expose the role they play in this system, in this unjust system. We need to conduct town halls like this, share stories, build an organizing and education, write letters to the editor. Those are very powerful. Get on media. At union meetings and other places, we need to have conversations. I, I, you're, I walk around, oh, what are you doing in this town? Well, you know, I'm here to talk about Medicare for All. Oh, you can't stop that conversation. It just goes on and on. It's quite extraordinary. Small business owners, workers, it really doesn't matter. And we need to have those conversations because they're vital to building the kind of movement we want. But we also have to recognize that we've been here before. We had the opportunity to do universal health care in the 40s. The Wagner, Wagner Dingle Act, destroyed by the American Medical Association under what? Red baiting, led by Ronald Reagan. We were here in the 70s when the Democrats controlled Congress and the presidency in 78. Some of us uh, may have lived through 1993. I know I did. I had hair then. And it was, uh, it was a fight. And what happened? In 1993, the AFL-CIO endorsed Hillary Care instead of single payer. And we all lived through 2009 when we had one of the most brilliant um, political uh, minds of our generation knowing that single payer was right and the answer, but didn't do it because of the experience, oh, the industry's too powerful. And we didn't have a movement to push him to do it. And so we ended up with the ACA. Mm-hmm. Profoundly important, establishing universal health care and expanding Medicaid, but ultimately undermined by its allegiance to the private insurance industry. So what do we have to do now? Well, we have to have a sense of urgency. We have to really understand that Medicare for All has to become the defining issue of 2018 first. I was on an interview today with an Arizona radio station. That's what she thought. She thought, oh my God, the Medicare for All has become the issue. Well, (laughs) ironically, it's become an issue because the Republicans have made it an issue, not because the Democrats have. But it has revealed, it has revealed that uh, they're vulnerable. And so we can make it a litmus test now, and we need to elect a Congress and a president in 2020 who's fully committed, because we have to recognize, not, not so much in red states, but I'll give you a blue state experience, Democratic legislatures will pass this every session if there's a Republican governor, because they know it won't happen. The real test is what happens when you have full control, 
of the legislature and the governorship and states or in Congress and the presidency. And that's why we have to build this movement to get that galvanizing leadership. But it's necessary, though not sufficient. And really what we have to do is accelerate our work, just as you're doing here in New Orleans, to accept our historic responsibility and realize how fleeting this moment is because we have been here before. And if we have that floor fight in 2019 on H.R. 676, we will know which side they're on. And we will go into 2020 more powerful. And we will put Congressman Richmond on the hot seat and others. And we will demand that they, that they pass this in the House and set that as the benchmark for what we want. Because after all, what political party in the world doesn't pursue a demand that 85% of its supporters want? That would be the Democratic Party. <laughs> so here we are. And we have to accept this. The, the ruling class has woken up to this. I think that's obvious. There's a claim that President Trump wrote an op-ed in the USA Today. I don't know if you saw that. If, all right, maybe you wrote I don't think he wrote it, but whatever. Uh, he, he claimed that uh, uh, you know Medicare for all is, is going to um, destroy Medicare, and he's trying to scare seniors. And then he cited the Mercado study that actually undermines his point. I don't really know why anyone believes the white supremacist <laughs> in chief, but there you have it. But Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan was on the warpath against Medicare for All. The head of CMS who administers Medicare and Medicaid was on the warpath against Medicare for All. This is real. And the reason they're worried is because we are winning. Because they're afraid we're going to abolish the private insurance industry, so we better do it. <laughs> if we don't, people will die. And this is really what it ultimately comes down to. It is a matter of life and death. And so we have to combat this with a mass movement of working class people. We are dealing here with people's lives. And we know, we know the consequences in our own work of what that means. And I want to conclude with a, another quote from Dr. King, heard it before, of all forms of inequality, Injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. And I want to suggest that our struggle for health justice can reclaim our humanity. The human kindness at the heart of solidarity that nurses practice every day at the bedside and in the streets and in their fight for health justice. As we reject the corruption of the present moment, we can share our vision of an alternative society. That's what Medicare for all represents, where working people make the decisions that determine our destiny. Then we can truly change the ethos that got us here and that also inhibits our future freedom. For without health, how can we be free? And that's why we say, all in. Thank you. Remember why we're here. Continue to breathe. Is this medically necessary? necessary. necessary.